Ron Chapman here, and welcome to the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Today, we are joined by Melinda Hightower for the Future of Wealth podcast segment. Melinda, welcome. I'll pass it over to you. Thanks so much, Siobhan, and welcome to the Future of Wealth, where we explore the power of cultural capital in advancing the arts, philanthropy, and inclusive growth. I'm your host, Mel Hightower, head of UBS's Multicultural Investors segment, and I am so excited to have with me today an advocate, activist, artist, curator, Michael Robertson. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you for asking me to be a part of the conversation. Well, Michael, we've gotten in trouble before having conversations, so I'm in, and I want to continue causing that kind of good trouble today. So why don't we dive right in? Thanks in part to touch points like the 1990 documentary, Paris is Burning, shows like Pose, for which you were the cultural consultant, um, Beyonce's Renaissance album. The house ballroom community is really becoming more centered in our collective consciousness. Yet the community came to life much earlier. Do you have a wonderful framing of how to explore house ballroom community and and that we should appreciate it really in six parts or six ways? First, as a theological discourse, as a freedom movement, which you talked about earlier, as an art collective, an organizing tool, and you say hermeneutics, and I'll just say interpretation of the body, um, as a radical pedagogy, and then finally a spiritual formation. So let's first talk about house ballroom culture as a theological discourse. And I want to be more specific. It's a black trans womanist theological discourse um, in the framing. And you and I have talked about Little Richard being really an opportunity to appreciate that lens if you could share a little bit more about why Little Richard is a is a good example of how to think about the ballroom community through that lens. Well, I'll do it in two parts. One, I am a graduate, uh, went to graduate school at Union Theological Seminary, and so I'm a student of womanist theology. And womanist theology was created by three black women, three black scholars, uh, black women scholars, Dr. Jacqueline Grant, Dr. Dolores Williams, and Dr. Katie Cannon. Dr. Katie Cannon happened to be Nick Cannon's Aquarius ex-husband. And they created the discourse in many ways for two parts. One, to lift up black liberation theology that was created by Dr. James Cohn in 69 and other black men. And they lifted it up because black liberation theology critiqued Christianity on its white supremacy. But they critiqued it at the same time and said, but you don't do anything with patriarchy. You black men, there are more black women in church that have less power. Then they critique uh, a feminist theology, particularly white feminist theology, and say, I applaud you for critiquing Christianity and its patriarchy, but you do very little with race and gender, how you call yourself a feminist, and you have black maids and Latina maids, and you treat them a particular kind of way. <clears throat> and so their notion was that black women are saved first and foremost by the ethos and the stories of other black women. And so, and that only a, only a black woman could be a woman. And so I'm real clear, I'm not. I just use womanist theology as a way to particularly look at ballroom. So because black trans women, I'm not asking the permission, I'm invoicing it. Black trans women are black women. And in relationship to the church trying to rid uh, black queers out of Harlem, they create the, the movement, a theology of mattering, a black lesbian feminist, Ruby Sell, who talks about in the 
and the bowels of a slave ship did not have the same language, but it had to create a pedagogy of somebody. That, to me, is where the theological discourse, when you've been told in the very essence of who you are as an abomination, and when you've been told through white supremacy um, in this country, and constitutionally, we were not human for 200 years, but there's a need to say that theologically, you are divine and you are somebody. So that's that. So the Richard piece is because you and I, the video I showed the PSA, we did an event called Heavenly Bodies, the mm-hmm. festival, uh, of course, Matt Gallo's Heavenly Bodies, and look at Barlow and that kind of lens, and we used, and we sliced it up, and we did a PSA. And Little Richard was singing the song, but it was also Little Richard singing when he used to do drag. His name was Princess Ladon. And, uh, you know, and so I, I used that particularly, not necessarily to say that Little Richard was involved, but again, this relationship to Transcending or up in drag in many ways than performance to theology. And always, black women have always had to be theological discourse for large, for our particular community, for large society, and black trans women are no different. Those pieces, being black, being out, being trans or LGBT, and being holy, those three things together, there's always been tension between those three. And I think what is so fascinating about viewing ballroom as a theological discourse, it's it's not asking permission. It is taking up space in that way and assigning value. And it almost transcends this concept of religion, but what has value and what is valued? Let's turn to the second lens with which we should appreciate the community, the Black Freedom Movement. You know, in response, I think one way to think about it is in response to what was happening during the Harlem Renaissance. And I'd love if you could touch on either that or other areas in which we should, we should consider house ballroom community as a free freedom movement. I was going to do two parts because I know you're going to get to tenant number five. I want to bring it back up that way. But you, first of all, you need to be called Dr. Hightower because you, your language uh, and the way that you get these this art is absolutely impeccable. So that's number number two and three. Um, but it is true. And so when you think about black freedom movements, if we go back and we talk about the Great Migration, black folk leaving the South and coming to the North, particularly, particularly in New York at that time or Harlem because of the new black method, it is a movement in, in, in search of more free spaces because it's in relationship or contestation to systems of oppression. And so after World War II, being black folk move again and make other cities blacker, D.C., Detroit, and all those other places, drag balls move with black folk because drag balls or ballrooms is black. And so in that sense, and then get, and so what does it mean, again, to move with your people, but then to go to that space that you're moving with your people and you are unfree in this new free space for black folk, right? And so because of that, you had to create another drag ball there so that these people can be free or at least feel freedom when they're in the state. There's this notion for a long time, particularly during Jim Crow um, era uh, and, and lynching, that the freest place for black folk were, was in the church. Um, and so for me, that's the same thing. And I, I love the fact that you, you, you placed in just a position or a dialectical tension this notion between theology and religion, because I'm not necessarily highly religious, the religion has impacted me. I always say I don't go to church, all that other stuff, just excuse my performativity. But theology for me means when people are making meaning out of their life and suffering. Period. That's why all black music to me 
is theological, right? And so in that sense, as drag balls migrate, then um, then it be their freedom movement. And in fact, I've moved, I'm going to do this back and forth, and in fact, in 1986, after the formation of House Bonds in 68, um, it begins to migrate again, and it does reverse migration, right? And so the, the black folk district is a great migration. House Ball in 1986 begins to move down south to D.C. or to Philadelphia, right? And so these other cities and spaces where there's large numbers of black folk, but these black LGBT folk are not free in these so-called new free spaces of blackness. I think this concept is freedom, and and voice is one I really want to explore. You mentioned that you consider all black music inherently theological or important. It actually makes me think about the third lens that that you talk about, ballroom as an art collective, and the similarities in my mind between ballroom and hip hop. In many ways, I think you know I look at as I just said, all black music being theological. But it was, and in many ways, the first one that I thought about ballroom being in dialogue with, knowing that this is the 50th anniversary of hip hop. And so, you know, you think about the very first hip hop party, DJ Cool Hurt, 1973, and we called it Three, him and two other men, Africa Babada and Grandmaster Flash, ushering in hip hop. And so hip hop was created by DJs, rap becomes the cultural production of a community. And it's in response to, Right, it's in response to Father Moses creating a, and, and other men created these developers, created a cross Bronx expressway. When it created a cross Bronx expressway, it disconnected these large factories from communities. These large factories go out of business. At the time, there was a lot of gang violence. At the time in South Bronx, at the time, there was a lot of police violence over black and Latinx men. Um, and, and, and the Bronx, and of course, New York City was on the brink of uh, 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 bankruptcy. And their political strategy was called planned shrinkage. And the notion was you shrink all the services in order to save uh, the city from going into bankruptcy. Bronx was hit the most. And what they did was shut down a lot of firehouses. These men who, who, who owned these factories would either do it themselves or hire gang members to put these factories on fire, create arson, and collect insurance money. And literally, that notion that Bronx was on fire is a literal notion. And so there was a gang member who was known to promote peace, and he got assassinated. And instead of his uh, gang retaliating, they had a uh, peace conference for about four days. And one of the questions were, who are we going to be now? How are we going to move around now? And the hip-hop, these underground spaces, became sort of that political, I call it theological response to a community with disenfranchised. You take to the South Bronx. Here's the East River. Here's Harlem. The same thing has happened in Harlem. All those drag ball is way before uh, hip hop, but the same the house ball is being created about the same time. So Frost and the River in Harlem, these trans women and black gay men the same year, black gay men begin walking ball, 73, same year hip hop was created. And it's the same thing. Here is a community that's disenfranchised, not only because of the city is going bankrupt, but disenfranchised in the black community. It, the, the idea that black people have critiqued the U.S. on not not really uh, having black folk participate in democracy and us not being citizens, the idea that black LGBT folk are critiquing black folk that we're not necessarily viewed as citizens in black community. And so, drag, uh, so ballroom 
in many ways across the South Bronx is being created. But it's not just these two art collectives, right? So it's not just hip hop, it's not just uh, uh, house ball. But salsa was create would begin to form itself in the late 60s, early 70s, in, with, with, with New York weekends in relationship to that. The New York weekend poet movement begins to create itself in relationship to, to the same thing. Art and art collectives have, all, have always been both political, but also mostly what we have not said is being theological. Again, because my definition of theology is when people are making meaning are, are out of our life and suffering. And so hip hop was telling, telling New York City we matter. Ballroom was telling both New York City that we matter, but black folk we matter too. I find interesting with this performance social critique, you know, some would argue or some would might say starting external to um, the center of consciousness and then for time becoming centered, what starts out as everything or fabulous for a lack of a better word can easily become expendable and be, and, and that early contribution can become devalued or dismissed. And that actually makes me want to think about the fourth um, lens that we're using, using really looking at ballroom as an organizing tool and performance as hermeneutics of the body. You know, voguing, ballroom culture, really be leveraged in popular or in, in more mainstream music and sometimes in a diluted in, in a diluted form, touch on um, the performance aspect of it as sort of an interpretation of the body in a homily. So, so, it, so this is again why sports, house ball, ballroom is in perfect dialogue with hip hop because I mean, it's the same exact thing, right? And so you when you begin to see in the late eighties, early nineties, the commodification of hip-hop in a particular kind of way. Um, and so, and we're at that, that space as well. And so, you know, 1990, um, two things happened, two emblematic events. Diddy uh, Livingston's documentary, Paris is Burning, about the house ball ballroom community, emerges in uh, independent film festivals and in independent film theaters. And Madonna does a song called Vogue, and she does have, she uses two Vogue members uh, the icon of pioneer Jose Extravaganza and Louis Extravaganza, and they go on tour with her. And so she she nationalizes it and do that differently. She places it in the conversation consciousness of the nation, the world actually. She never then says, but with the, the cultural production comes the wall community. And so you you'll hear people, especially white folks, would say things like to you, Oh my God, you know how to do the Madonna vote? And you're like, girl, what? <laughs> but at any rate, what what people oftentimes don't know is that two black women have both in their videos before Madonna did. Jody Watley in 1987 did, and Queen Latifah did it in 1987 as well. And they both had the same two uh, ballroom people. And they were, there's an interesting thing about colorism, because in actuality, the two people, they had the same two people were black men, which was uh, uh, Muhammad Omni, the pioneer Muhammad Omni, and the pioneer the who just passed away, Derek Extravaganza. Um, and these are black men, um, and the Madonna had a lighter skin, a Latino man, and one was Afro-Latino. So there's a relationship around colorism. And so, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I was some Angela Davis, you know, blah, 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 political person at the time that I wasn't excited about, right, both of them. The idea, I think all marginalized communities, unfortunately, of course, however you want to look at it, 
are looking to be seen and read legible or visible to by larger communities. And so for us, we look, oh my God, they see us. And then you begin to create a sort of political literacy for yourself and push back on that. And what Baldwin did was, was then take the idea that she nationalized it to a large degree and begin using Vogue, because Vogue is the very thing that brings first, that first brings you to Baldwin. You hear about Vogue, you're in a club, you see Vogue, you speak, you know, and you saw Madonna's video and people then realized it's Baldwin and said, I'm interested in going to a ball to see that. Then you get there and you see other categories. The Baldwin begins to use that in many ways to create uh, other geographical regions and there's an explosion. After that, the 90s is a big explosion. We could talk about the big explosion today. The 90s become a very big explosion from from Chicago in the early 90s, from uh, Atlanta, from other places. In fact, uh, let me go back to Atlanta. Atlanta is interesting because a guy named Tony created the House of Escada on the campus of a historically black college. More, but here is ball, which creates the ballroom scene in Atlanta. So here is this notion of freedom movement, right? Here's the same space where Dr. King was uh, developed, Morehouse College, this ballroom creates itself as well. The notion about hermeneutics in the body, that's nothing to, I like your language right interpretation, that's nothing but a big theological word, which means how one reads a text. And so I oftentimes use not only vogue or performance, but particularly lip sync performance. We had a longer time, I'll place it in a conversation, RuPaul's Drag Race, which is very different. But these trans women, oftentimes, and they're always the trans women. We only call them drag performances because back then we called trans women drag queens. And so these drag performances were always on a Sunday that's not accidental. That's the same day we was in many ways systematically ostracized out of the church. So the club becomes our church. The trans woman, lip-syncing, becomes just like the black woman I went to see when I went to church when I was young. And so at Inquire, the big voice, and so I call that a hermeneutic, meaning that, that here's this trans woman becoming, in many ways, our Bible. We're reading it. She's contextualizing joy and pain and suffering through performance for us, what have you. She's holding space for us this Sunday in a, in a club that we call church, that was church for us, that allowed us to be free. That's beautiful. And you mentioned... Derek Extravaganza, what actually is causing me to think about the House of Extravaganza, and, and it brings me to the fifth lens, which is ballroom as radical pedagogy. And when I think about the disconnectedness that can happen with from the performance to the context or the individuals who were actually creating and and driving these movements, we are now starting to see a bit of a reckoning, particularly with the House of Extravaganza, and I'd love it if you could share that incredible news. The guy producer named Mike Stafford, uh, white queer man, become my friend, um, but my daughter Genovia Len Vance, legend, mother of New York City, of the House of Len Vance, and Dominique Jackson, which of course is the star of Pose and American God, she has to be my sister in the same house. Um, they were actually brought me into a film that they got greenlit with Mike and director Kim, which is a white trans woman, about the life and death of Venus Extravaganza. And Venus was featured in 1990's Paris is Burning, and we know that Venus was brutally murdered in 1988, and her murderer was never found. And so, at first, they brought me in just to talk about the history of the Baldwin community, because to do that piece. 
Then this piece at the same time came up around getting her name changed on her tombstone. They reached out to the, the family of origin and started doing that work. And then this relationship between history and landmark. And so the guy, Mike Stafford, the producer, hit me up and said, this is, I got this other piece. And this was not the film. It was separate, but of course, we're going to be part of the film. And he said, you know, we have this moment in time to think about this house that she lived in, getting registered. That's where a lot of the filming is in that house from the, in a documentary. The amount of black and Latinx trans women that continue to be beat and brutalized have increased, increased, increased. And I said to them that Jersey City will be the template for, for the world over. As we're in the space where there's anti-trans, anti-drag, anti-LGBT, and even anti-black studies legislation happening. I said, but this is not just about Latinx trans women because being is Latinx. I said, but it is. I said, it's not just about African-American trans women, and yet it is. I said, it's not just about LGBTQ folks, and yet it is. I said to them, but it's also about you, because Fannie Lou Hamer said, until we all free, none of us are That's just plain and simple. And in the law of, of quantum physics, that makes sense. And so they repeated what I said when they were voting, and it just moved me. And so it got passed, 6 zero, and now we're going to the state and to the Fed level as well. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I love to see – it's wonderful to see – Angie's contribution be fully centered and recognized and visible. So we're to the final lens uh, of the framework with which we should look at house and ballroom culture, a spiritual formation. And, and we've talked about houses, and and I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the fact that you are the co-founder of the House of Mason Margella. I'd love to talk about this, the idea of houses as family. Because in my mind, that's what they are. You, mothers and fathers, evokes that sense. I'd love for you to give us an understanding of, is, is that the right way to think about it? And talk to us about the formation of, of your house. So, yeah, Black has never been in Baltimore now for 29 years. I've been in eight houses. <laughs> they, you, when, you, when you've been in a lot of houses, they call you a house hopper. <laughs> I'm in eight houses. I've created four of them. Um, and so the last house that happened now, I created my two sons, which is the legendary Benny Watson, the legendary Trey, um, based on Jelly Boat, Mason Margellis, but also the iconic trans woman, uh, Cassie Mort, which we call Tempest in Ballroom, the legendary Smiles, uh, Mason Margella. We created it because we were all in the house in Milan, which is the, the iconic house of Milan. We left. And we created a house in Mason Margiela. But I'm going to back into your point around this notion of spiritual formation. I love how you invoice uh, uh, this notion of family because family does, in some ways, there's a relationship, especially the old ballroom, where people are being kicked out of their families and so houses becoming a family because they've been ostracized, not only out of their original family, right, their family origin, but also times out of the black community because of transphobia and homophobia and, and, and all those other things and a spiritual information around family, around mattering, and a spiritual information around mattering has been so important to Barbara is for this exact reason. You know, the last thing I say about that is it's in the same thing with black trans women getting brutalized. One of the things we do know because of a global pandemic and we pause, that we pause enough to watch George Floyd get murdered. And that's the only reason the world cared that much, because we were all in a pause. And 
What we didn't pause enough to know was that six days later, same town, same city, the black trans woman in Ayana, New York, was beat, brutalized by about 30 black folk in a store, store clerk trying to protect her. They dragged her outside, beating her and all this other stuff. And somehow in the moment of her being beat by 30 people, she had the historical wherewithal to say, if I'm going to die tonight, I'm going to drag myself back in the store and die on camera. Because I want the world over to see not only what's happening to me at this moment, and if I die at this moment, but to, excuse me, to black trans women around the world. And I think the historical wherewithal, because that's the same thing Mamie Till did with her son Emmett Till, when she decided to have an open casket and bring all those black publications to take pictures of it, and did nothing to be the father body, because she said she wanted the world over to see what's happening to black people in the South. So Ayanna Dior does the same thing. She winds up surviving. And so here is, even though she's not ballroom, but ballroom, because I oftentimes say that ballroom has something to say to teach the world over about what it means to be human in the struggle for freedom in the face of catastrophe. So this is one of those moments. So to tie in both Ayana, which was in 2020, to now we're in 2023, what you mentioned in terms of the radical pedagogy of Venus House, that this comes full circle. This, to me, is no accident. And ballrooms and me lead the way around those things. And I think what you've talked about, again, the thread that's going through around who has value and how does one sort of are sort of take in their concept of worth in the context of what society um society norms, values, um, language, all of that, that to me is where where ballroom culture can be so uplifting because it operates as a ballast against that and really stands sort of in the breach or in the gap, for lack of a better word, to say that everyone has value, everyone is human, and everyone has worth. And we need to start internalizing that if we want individuals to survive. And I also think what's important about ballroom and and the concept of family is that to your point about the over romanticizing of ballroom right we can look at shows and think and pick out the positive parts but what we do is often we ignore the pain yeah that's right that's right and and we ignore the struggles and we ignore whether they're mental or health related uh, mental or physically health related we ignore that at times and only interact with the, the house and ballroom community on the when it comes to performance and not when it comes to the deaths that happen in the community, not when it comes to um, the ostracized the, the people, members of the community being ostracized. It prompts us to wrestle, I love that word, to wrestle with the fullness. Michael, I always learn so much when I talk to you and when we speak, thank you, thank you for taking us on the journey of your framework. I really appreciate it. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreement 
guidance and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy. Thank you.